You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Mineral Wells to uh, sing at a banquet that we were, I'd been invited to sing for at K. Bob Steakhouse in Mineral Wells. Had my guitar and my PA system and, you know, did all my picking and grinning and sang Lucille, you know, and uh, in a barn in Toledo, you know, across from the Bible. Y'all, <laughs> if y'all heard that one. And then began to, to go toward more serious things. They're really, that's my version of Lucille. It cha- I changed the words a little bit. Um, began to go toward more of a serious uh, time and uh, came right down to the end and was giving me my testimony, as I always do whenever I have opportunity to, to sing someplace like that, and uh, began to talk about my experience of uh, how I became a Christian and the things that happened in the months after, subsequent to my Christian walk with my father dying just six months after, uh, after I became a Christian and performing his funeral and, and all of that stuff and and going back, and I just kind of, as I was sharing with them there, I went back and remembered, and uh, it's so good to go back and remember. Uh, coming home uh, about an hour, hour and a half on the highway, I drove the speed limit. Uh, coming back into Fort Worth, I just began going back in my mind and remembering uh, my walk with Jesus, how it began, and uh, what he's taught me, and, and the lesson that he taught me through my father's life that was an empty life, a meaningless life, uh, as far as God is concerned and anything spiritual and, and the lesson that the Lord taught me that day when we buried him, that this is what the world will do to you. And, and I said to those people that night, I've said it to you uh, before, but every time I go back to that experience and remember that day, burying him and putting him in the ground, I'm reminded that I must thank Jesus every day of my life for what he saved me from, what he called me out of and what he has called me into. And uh, I, every day, hardly a day goes by that, that, that I don't go back to that experience, just kind of go back to Calvary where I met Jesus and, and go back to that experience of salvation and, and that experience of, of the lessons that God has taught me through the years uh, about what, he, what it means to be born again, what it means to be saved, uh, what a blessed privilege it is for those of us who are the called, those of us who are the chosen whom God has placed his hand upon and drawn us unto himself in saving faith, that we might be born again. I don't understand that. Uh, but last night, just sharing it again, and uh, it's the first time that I've had an opportunity to share it publicly in, in a couple of months, but last night, going back to it and sharing it again, I was just filled up with this praise and, and this love and adoration for the Lord Jesus, for what he's done in my life and what he, what he does in, in the lives of people who come to him in faith. And, and I began to think about some of you, and I thought about my family, and just how God has just put things together. And I just praised him, just had a praise service driving back last night on the highway uh, coming back into Fort Worth. And uh, that song just kind of sums it all up. You know, 10,000 years in glory, and we will just have begun, just have begun to praise him. We've only touched the hem of the garment at this time and in this place 
of what glory is going to be like with Jesus when we're resurrected with that glorified body. And boy, I look forward to that. <laughs> that glorified body, that body without disease, that body that's got weight on its bones and or, you know, whatever it's going to be, that glorified, resurrected body to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus for eternity. I look forward to that, and I just wanted to share that with you. Okay, let's, let's take your Bibles tonight. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to finish up what we jumped into and began last Sunday night. I promised you that we would do it, and had I not promised you, I probably would have backed out. <laughs> I probably would have just decided, let's go on and do something else. But because I promised, then I'm going to do it. It's a necessary thing. I knew that I would do this from the first day that I came here to be your pastor because it's a necessary thing. It's a necessary thing that we understand. I don't uh, pretend that everybody's going to agree with everything I'm going to say tonight. That's okay. If you want to be wrong, that's your, that's your right. That's your prerogative. No, I'm, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I'm just, seriously, I am kidding about that. Uh, we can love one another. We can serve the Lord Jesus in this place without agreeing completely down the line on everything. You know, unity does not mean completely agreement. You can be in unity and unified and not completely agree. And so we don't have to completely agree on this thing of the spiritual gifts and particularly the one that we're dealing with tonight on the gift of tongues. We don't have to completely agree on that, but we can be unified in Jesus and we can serve him in this place. But because it is so important... Um, that we understand what the Scripture says. I have set my course to finish this thing tonight and to do this, um, and, and then we can get on, on with it and, and begin doing some other things on Sunday evenings after we've finished this. Last week I began talking about the distortion of the spiritual gifts. There have been some distortions about the spiritual gifts, and that's why we're having to deal with this in the first place. I dealt primarily with two areas of the distortion of the spiritual gifts, and, and really that dealt with more the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. First of all, I dealt with this distortion of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that some folks are saying that you can be saved and at a later time receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we went into that in depth. We went into the three passages in the book of Acts that are used to support that, and we examined them individually, and it came to an understanding that that was not at all what the Scripture teaches that you receive the Spirit of God when you trust Jesus, you receive all of Him, you don't receive any more of Him at a later time, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit at salvation. But there is that distortion that is being taught that you can be saved and then at some second blessing, some later subsequent experience, be filled with the Holy Spirit or receive the Holy Spirit and uh, that that is not at one and the same with your salvation experience. That is not what the Scripture teaches. The second thing that we dealt with was that, that distortion of the Spirit that says that if you are not if you have not spoken in tongues, then you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are those that are saying that in our day and time, and so we dealt with that, that say that if you have not received this, this uh, experience, this gift of speaking in tongues, then you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And we studied through that and came to an understanding that that is not what the Scripture says, that speaking in tongues or any of the spiritual gifts, never are any of the spiritual gifts held up as evidences of being Spirit-filled. Quite the contrary, the church in Corinth was the most carnal, the most sinful, if you will, group of people that Paul dealt with, yet he says all of the gifts were evident in their midst. But there was not much of the fruit of the Spirit being evidence, which was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering, all of the things that are listed in Galatians 5.22 as being the fruit of the Spirit. So the gifts are not evidence of the filling of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of the, of the filling and the anointing of the Spirit. Now tonight, I want us to deal, to deal strictly with this thing of tongues. What is it? What is its purpose? 
Is it far today? We'll probably not deal with that so much, although I'm going to state that in general terms, but primarily what is the gift of tongues and what is its purpose? And, I, and I'm going to say some things tonight that are controversial. I mean, in anybody that speaks on this subject is going to say some things that are controversial. So all of you are not going to agree with me. That's okay. But if you have a disagreement, let it be based upon good, sound, biblical exposition. Not upon experience. I don't care how, what kind of experience you've had or that you know have an aunt or an uncle or, or someone else that has had an experience. I'm not interested in experience. I'm interested in the Word of God and what the Word of God says. And if your experience does not jive with the Word of God, then your experience is false. It is only the Word of God that is our standard. And whatever our experience is, if it deviates from the Word of God, then the experience has got to be thrown out the window. So we're not talking experience tonight. We're talking about good, sound, biblical exposition and interpretation of the Word of God. And I'm not going to be able to deal with all of it tonight. There's no way I can do that. But I'm going to hit the high points. First of all, I want to say to you about this, this, this gift uh, of speaking in tongues, that it is a scriptural gift. Okay, now mark that one down. It is a scriptural gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 39. Paul states it fairly plainly. He states it fairly bluntly. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not, do not forbid to speak in tongues. Now, this gift is a scriptural gift. That means that we can't become a bunch of ostriches <laughs> Is that how you say that? Ostriches? Ostriches? Boy, that sounds funny. Oh, well, you know what I'm talking about, that bird with the funny neck that sticks his head in the ground, okay? We can't become one of those and just stick our heads in the ground and pretend that the Bible doesn't say anything about the gift of tongues. It does. It's a very scriptural gift. But if that is true, if it is a scriptural gift, then it's important and it's incumbent upon us to understand what the Bible says about this gift and what it means. You see, many folks in our day and time and throughout history, have fallen into heresy because they have not listened to the Word of God. They have listened to experience or they have listened to what man has said, but they have not listened to the Word of God. In the last two or three decades, this experience of glossolalia or speaking in tongues has become a very popular one. Why is that? Why has it become so popular in the last 20 to 30 years? It is because in our society that is, that is empty, our society that is filled with people that are looking for, for reality in life, that folks are, are, are really and truly looking for something real. They are looking for something that, uh, that they can put their hands upon. Some, oftentimes people are looking for experiences, and I warn you about looking for an experience because if that's what you're looking for, even the evil one can give you an experience. But they are looking for something real, something that they can sink their teeth into. And many people are reacting against the cold, dead legalism and formalism of many churches. That's why one of the reasons that tongues has become so popular is because many of the churches that ought to be providing that spiritual input and providing that sense of warmth and reality and worship are just cold, dead, formal, legalistic Groups of people that meet together and pat each other on the back. Bailey Smith, when I was in seminary, pastor of the Dell City Baptist Church in, uh, our first Southern Baptist Church in Dell City, Oklahoma, one of the fastest growing churches in our country, a great church and a tremendous pastor and preacher, was preaching in seminary chapel, and, and uh, he just has a way of stating things just the way they are. And he says, you know, men, it's, it's no surprise to me 
because our choirs in our churches are singing in Latin, the preachers are preaching in, in Greek, and it's no wonder that the people want to speak in tongues. I mean, they're reacting against, oftentimes, this, this is a reaction against the cold, dead, legal formalism that is in our churches. And people are looking for fire, really and truly. They're looking for something that's real. And what happens oftentimes in their search for fire, they get wildfire, you know, and that goes to the other kind of extreme. But it is important that we understand that this is a scriptural gift. Paul said, do not forbid to speak in tongues. Now, I want to state this to you. It's my belief and it's based upon scripture and I'm going to show you this and we're going to walk through the word of God on this. It is my belief, not only that is it a scriptural gift, but that tongues in the Bible was always intelligible language. Known languages. Now write that down because that's going to be crucial for everything that we're going to study tonight. Not ecstatic gibberish. Never in the scriptures was tongues that. Tongues was always known language. It was intelligible language. That does not mean that the person that was speaking uh, understood the language always, unless he had the gift of interpretation but that somebody understood that it was a known language, that it wasn't just strings of, of phrases put together or ecstatic gibberish that nobody in the world was able to understand. That tongues in the Bible is a scriptural gift, but it is a known language gift, always known languages. Now, you say, well, James, how do you say that? Why do you say that? We're not going to get through with this tonight. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, all right? Go to Acts chapter 2. That obviously is... Uh, passage you're familiar with we dealt with it some last week it is the experience of the receiving of the spirit at pentecost upon the people of god and as you read acts chapter 2 verses 4 through 11 well let me just flip over there with you uh, so i can look at it with you acts chapter 2 verses 4 through 11 that is the experience of the spirit of god coming as jesus promised that he would upon those disciples there and verse 4 says that they began to speak with other tongues they began to speak with other tongues now there is no scholar that is worth his salt that I know of, no scholar that is worth his salt that will deny that tongues at Pentecost were known languages. Even most charismatics will agree with that and will go down the line on that, that Pentecost, the tongues that were spoken at Pentecost, were known languages. They were not ecstatic words. They were known languages. As a matter of fact, the word tongue, even itself, means language the word tongue glossi in the original language there i am speaking in greek again uh the word tongue though means a language we even use it that way today oftentimes in our speech we speak of someone who speaks another tongue don't we if they speak uh, uh greek or they speak hebrew or they speak spanish or they speak something oftentimes that word tongue we use it as synonymous with the word for language well that's what it was in at pentecost they were known languages Verse 4 says, they were filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues. Verse 11 then says, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues. There the word tongue is used as being synonymous with the word language. Here these, were, these people were at Pentecost. They were speaking in tongues. Verse 11 says that these people who were all there for the feast and the festivals that came from all over the place and spoke all different kinds of languages, as they were there, they were hearing them speak in their own tongues, in their own languages. Now, that does not deny the miraculous. 
I'm not denying that. It was a miraculous happening. I'm not trying to deny the miraculous. I'm trying to get at what was happening, what really happened. And at Pentecost, they spoke known languages, earthly languages that were understood by people on the earth, okay? So if at Pentecost it was known languages, it was that way all the way through the book of Acts. It was that way all the way through the book of Acts. The three instances in the book of Acts where tongues is spoken, it is always known languages, not ecstatic utterance. The second time that's referred to in the scripture in Acts is chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 46. This is the experience of Simon Peter going to preach to Cornelius, that Gentile, and his family and the folks that were gathered in his house. And the scripture says that Peter preached to them the gospel. They were saved and they spoke in tongues. Okay? Now, is this experience the same as it was at Pentecost? This speaking in tongues is the same experience. Certainly it was. Look in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses uh, 15 through 17. This is Peter speaking. He's back in Jerusalem now. He says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them, these Gentiles, the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way. Now you see what has happened in chapter 10. Peter has preached to Cornelius and this group that's in his house. They've been saved and they began to speak with tongues. Now Peter has gone back to Jerusalem and he's back in Jerusalem and he is explaining to the apostles in Jerusalem what took place. And he's simply telling them. He's saying, well, listen, guys, this is what happened. I preached to them. They received the gospel. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. And just as it did on us at the beginning. What beginning? What beginning is he talking about? He's talking about the beginning at Pentecost, obviously. And he's saying the very same thing that happened to us, that happened to the Jews, the 120 disciples at Pentecost, that very same thing has now happened to the Gentiles. And they have spoken in tongues just like we did at the beginning. Now, what was it at Pentecost? It was known languages, earthly languages. That's stated clearly. Like I said, no scholar worth his salt is going to argue with that or deny that. Well, the experience with Cornelius, Peter says to the apostles, it happened to them just like it did to us. Just like at Pentecost, the very same thing that happened to them happened to us. There is not even the slightest hint that this experience in Cornelius' house was any different than it was at Pentecost as far as the tongues being known languages. Well, the third passage in Acts is in Acts chapter 19. We dealt with that also last week. This is the experience with the disciples of John the Baptist. Paul comes to Ephesus and he meets this group of men, about 12 of them, the scripture says, and begins to talk with them. He's suspicious about their salvation experience. Something about them caused him to question that. So he begins to ask them questions, and he discovers that, in fact, they were just John's disciples. They were not disciples of Jesus. They had not really fully understood the gospel of Christ. And so Scripture says that Paul explains to them the gospel, and they're baptized in the name of Jesus. And the Scripture says that they spoke in tongues. Now, there is not the slightest hint anywhere that that was any different than the experience at Pentecost. I don't know how you can get that, that at, at Pentecost it was known languages. In Cornelius' house it was exactly the same as Pentecost, known languages. Then all of a sudden in chapter 19 something new has happened and now it's gibberish. And now it's ex ecstatic utterance. There's no foundation for that. They spoke in tongues, known languages. The word tongues, remember, remember the word tongue is synonymous with language. As at Pentecost, as in the home of Cornelius, as with the disciples of John in Acts chapter 19. 
So throughout the book of Acts, I'm satisfied. In the book of Acts, tongues was always known languages, not ecstatic utterance, not gibberish. Okay, what about Corinth? What about Corinth? There are some folks that, that will say that the tongues in Corinth was not like the tongues in Acts, that it was of a different kind, um, that the tongues in Acts, they will agree, was known earthly languages, but that the tongues in Corinth was an ecstatic kind of utterance, a nonsensical, not an earthly language um, that they spoke in the church in Corinth. I have a problem with that, first of all, because it's inconsistent. First of all, because that is very, very inconsistent. It seems very inconsistent to me that the Holy Spirit would change terminology like that. That in Acts, throughout Acts, that tongues would be known languages, that all of a sudden when we come to Corinth, for some reason, for no explainable reason, all of a sudden now tongues does not mean known languages, but now in Corinth all of a sudden it means some kind of ecstatic utterance that is not intelligible to anyone other than supposedly the one who has the gift of interpretation. I believe that it's the same thing. And that is going to be based upon and is based upon an exposition of the scriptures, not on just what I feel and my belief, but first of all, I just say it just seems inconsistent to me to say that it's one thing in Acts and then to say that it's another thing in Corinth. There's no basis for that. There's no reason for that from the scripture to, to, de de to deduce that fact. Okay, well, let me give you some reasons why I am convinced that in Corinth, it was the same as it was in Acts, known languages. First of all, because the tongues that were spoken in Corinth were languages or tongues that could be interpreted, okay? Now, you know that. You've heard of the gift of interpretation. Okay, they were, they were languages that could be interpreted. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then we'll look at a verse in chapter 14 in just a moment. At Pentecost, there was no need for an interpreter, because everyone, the scripture says, heard in their own language, didn't they? I mean, there were maybe hundreds of languages, probably not that many, but maybe probably 20 or 30 or 40, maybe 50 languages that were represented there at Pentecost. These thousands of people that were there in Jerusalem for the feast that came from various lands around that spoke different languages. And so at Pentecost, there was no need for the interpreter because everyone heard the gospel in their own language, the scripture says. But in Corinth, the situation was different in this, that it, what was happening in Corinth was it was in a church service and it was in a service of worship and someone was wanting to come into a service of worship kind of like ours where everybody spoke the same language. Most of them probably spoke uh, at least Greek. Uh, that was the common language, okay? If it was a mixed church, a Gentile church and a Jewish church, then some of the Gentiles would have understood Hebrew, but Greek was the common language. But someone in Corinth is wanting to come into a service of worship where everybody spoke the same language and he's wanting to speak in a foreign language that no one would understand. And so obviously in that situation, there is need for an interpreter. If that's going to take place, there's need for an interpreter. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul is listing these things and you come to the very la the last line and he says to another, uh, various kinds of tongues and to another, the interpretation of tongues. There's that word, interpretation. Then you flip over to chapter 14, verse 27. And he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, in a tongue, a language, it should be by two or, or, uh, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. There's that word again. 1 Corinthians 12, interpret. The gift of interpretation. 1 Corinthians 14, let one interpret. 
there must be an interpreter. One of the reasons I believe that these are known languages in Corinth, just like in Acts, is because they were languages that could be interpreted. Now, the important thing is what does the word interpret mean? What does it mean? This is the word in the original language, and I'm not going to speak in Greek, okay? But this is the word in the original language that is used normally for translating or interpreting, if you will, from one known language into another. I know of no instance that this word is ever used to refer to interpreting unintelligible language. It is the word that is always used for translating from one known language into another. Let me give you some scriptural examples. Mark chapter 15, verse 34. Are you with me on this word of interpretation? This is a word that is used for translating from one language into another, from a known language into another known language. Acts chapter, Mark chapter 15. Go ahead and flip over there with me. Start to say, go ahead and flip over. Don't flip over. <laughs> Just turn over in your Bibles, okay? Mark chapter 15, verse 34. Jesus is on the cross. And notice what, what is said in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now Jesus is on the cross, and he's speaking. He's not speaking Hebrew. He's not speaking Greek. He's speaking Aramaic, which was a founding language of the Hebrew language. But he's speaking Aramaic. Okay, there was a lot of similarities between the two languages. On the cross, at this point, Jesus speaks in the Hebrew tongue, Eloi, I mean in the Aramaic tongue, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And the scripture says, which means, which is translated, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The word translated is the exact same word in 1 Corinthians that says interpret. Let there be an interpreter. Let there be an interpretation is the very same word. It's a word that is used for translating from one language, known language, into another known language. That's not the only instance it's used. John chapter 9. Turn with me. John chapter 9, verse 7. There's no way. Let me read it real quick if you're not there. John chapter 9, verse 7. Jesus uh, is talking to this blind man, okay, that he's healed. He's He's spitting the clay and, uh, on the ground and put it on his eyes. And, and then he says in verse, verse 7, And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, and in parentheses, which is translated sent. The word translated there, once again, is the very same word in 1 Corinthians that means interpret, translating from one language to another. The word Siloam was a Hebrew word that was translated into Greek as Siloam, or into English, uh, uh, and into Greek as sent, or into English as sent, in our final translation. The point I'm trying to make, and I'm sure it's getting really clear to, to, to some of you here, it's getting clear as mud, is that I believe the tongues in Corinth were known languages, first of all, because they were, known, they were languages that could be translated. Just as other language, Hebrew can be translated into English, Greek can be translated into English, Spanish can be translated into English, and vice versa, that word is used for translating from one known language into another. There's another reason, though, that I believe that these were known languages. It's because of what's said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 itself, verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21. Isn't this exciting? This is why I didn't want to have to deal with this. 
I'd much rather just preach Jesus. You know what? I really would. But we've got to do this. Stay with me. Please, don't fall asleep on me. Stay with me. If you'll, if you'll dig in here, you may not agree with me on everything, but I'm going to challenge your thinking at least. If I can just at least do that, challenge you to go back to the Word of God and be honest with the Scriptures and not just an experience that you've been told about, but be honest with the Word of God, then what I've done tonight will be worthwhile. Okay? All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21. Let's read that together. In the law it is written, and this is couched in this chapter that is the prime chapter that Paul teaches about tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Verse 21, in the law it is written, by men of strange tongues, synonymous with languages again, and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now it says, in the law it is written. Hmm, where is it written? It's written in the book of Isaiah. That's a quote out of the Old Testament that, that Paul gives there's a quote out of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. You might want to write that down and cross-reference that and look it up. And the context of that passage in Isaiah is that God is giving his people a warning. He is giving the Hebrew people a warning that because of their rebellion, because of their hardness of heart, he is going to send the Assyrians. He is going to send the Assyrian army against them, and they are going to beat them into the ground. <laughs> That's the Reeves... Uh, interpretation or translation of that. I mean, it literally means they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna be my chastening rod upon you because of your hardness of heart and because of your rebellion. God says, I'm going to raise up the Assyrians and I'm going to send them down into Palestine and they're going to give you the licking of your life. And they are going to be used as my chastening rod, as my judgment. Now then, he says, I am going to send you men of strange tongues. Now, obviously... The Hebrews didn't understand the Assyrian language. It was a, a very broken kind of uh, nonsensical, uh, uh, to them it would have been nonsensical, a, uh, a language that was not very developed and it was very gruff and it was very rough. And, and God is saying, I'm going to send you these Assyrians, these people, and they're going to speak with a strange tongue. You're not going to understand that tongue at all, but they are going to be my chastening rod upon your lies because you have, have fallen into unbelief. God's saying you haven't listened to my prophets and they spoke your own language. You haven't listened to my prophets. So I'm going to send you a people that you are going to listen to, but you'll not understand their language, but you're going to listen to them because they are going to be my chastening rod. The key thing there is that he says that they will speak strange, strange tongues, strange tongues, not ecstatic utterance, not gibberish, but they spoke the Assyrian language. But the Hebrews were not going to understand it. Now, right here in the midst of this chapter of 14 that is used to, 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 um, to support this idea of glossolalia being some kind of ecstatic utterance, Paul uses the word tongue to refer to a known language, the Assyrian language, not ecstatic utterance. And it would be very inconsistent in the use of language for him to turn around and use the same word to mean something completely opposite and completely different in the very next verse, as a matter. So, <clears throat> tongues in Corinth, just as in Acts, was a known language. And what that means, folks, is that when someone comes to you and says that they are speaking in tongues, the biblical scriptural gift of tongues, and it's some kind of gibberish that is nonsensical, mark it off. It's not of God. Now, I'll say that. I'll say that very 
sternly as much as I can. Because I am so convinced, all based upon the scripture, that tongues was not gibberish. Tongues was known language. Whatever it is when someone practices what is known as modern-day glossolalia and the charismatic movement or wherever it happens to be, it may be the result of emotion. It may be the result, I'm sure it is the result, of the act of a human will of the mind, but it is not the scriptural gift of speaking in tongues. That was a known language. Now, so three reasons that I believe that tongues in Corinth as well as in Acts was known languages. First of all, because of the word tongue used consistently to mean a known language. Second of all, is because it's something that can be translated. And the word translate or interpret there is the word that is used in Mark and in John and other places for translating from one known language into another language. Third, because of the Isaiah quote, the couch right here in the middle of chapter 14, that is the sin quenon of modern day glossolalia. You might say, well, what about chapter 14? Verse 27, while we're here in the neighborhood, we'll deal with it. Maybe you've got the King James tonight. I want you to take your pen. I want you to mark something out of your Bible, okay? Now, I wouldn't ask you to do that real often, but if you've got the King James translation, you just do it. Take your pen and get ready to just mark it out. It's wrong. You don't belong. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 27, it says, If anyone speaks in an unknown tongue, is that what your King James says? Hopefully, it's in... Uh, italics. Is that right? The word unknown? The reason it's in italics is because it's not in the original languages. The word unknown does not even appear in the original languages. And so in the, in the newer, the modern translations that are uh, more careful to not uh, to put in some interpretation in the, in the translation, um, that word is taken out because it is not in the original language. It's not in the Greek language. It's not shown in any manuscripts at all. That was an attempt in the 17th century of the translation of the King James to interpret. They were interpreting there. Those interpreters obviously understood it to be unknown languages, and so they put the word unknown. At least they were honest enough to put it in italics, okay, to show you that it was not in the, in the manuscripts. It was not in the original language. Mark that out. It don't belong. It's simply who speaks in a tongue. That's all that's there, okay, in the original language. So there's two times, as a matter of fact, that that happens. There's one over in chapter, uh, um, maybe it is verse 2. It says unknown again. Mark it out. It doesn't belong. It's nothing, had cast no shadow upon the authority of the Scripture or the inspiration of the Scripture. That was simply translators that did that. <laughs> they blew it. Nothing to do with the Word of God. The Word of God is true. But they attempted to, to interpret a little bit as they translated that. Oh, no way. I am not even halfway through what I was going to cover tonight. And I am not going to do what we did last week. Let me see if I can put this together very quickly and just I'm just going to give you the outline okay and if you have a question about this then I'll get set with you and I'll deal with you individually okay okay is a scriptural gift forbid not known languages though known languages that's the key thing I wanted you to get tonight tongues in the Bible was known languages always not ecstatic utterance now in pagan religions they did all the ecstatic utterance they did all that stuff that had been happening for hundreds of years centuries before Christ the mystery religions Hinduism, since the time of Christ, and Buddhism, all of those religions, those world religions that uh, have, have had that kind of thing. As a matter of fact, um, um, researchers have even gone into places where this thing of the modern-day glossolalia was going on and taped it, put it on tape, gone into a Hindu temple and taped the, the, what the Hindus were doing in the Hindu temple and played them back and 
the similarities are amazing. I mean, it's obviously you can't understand anything, but all the characteristics are there. It's just gibberish going on and going on. Now, that doesn't mean that they're demon-possessed or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but I'm simply saying that it's an act of the will. It's an act of the emotion, and your mind is capable of doing some crazy, crazy things. But the scriptural gift of tongues is a known language. Second of all, it's a sign gift. It's a scriptural gift, but it's a sign gift. Not a sign to the believer, but a sign to the unbeliever. Verse 22, chapter 14, just continue reading. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Let me see if I can condense this. Okay. All right. Gosh, there's so much here, but let me just, let me tie it together. How am I going to react if I go to a place where uh, I'm not a believer and someone is speaking in, uh, stands, comes up to me and, uh, and starts speaking in some wild, crazy gibberish, you know, that I don't understand, nobody else understands. Is that going to be a sign to me? It's going to be a sign that maybe it's time to call the, the men in the white suits. I mean, really, I'm, I'm coming from a non-believer's perspective that's never heard of this thing of tongues or anything like that, and some believer comes up to me and starts speaking in some, you know, gibberish, some unknown thing that, that's, not, that's nonsensical to me. Is that going to be a sign to me? No. But Paul says it's not a sign to the believer, it's a sign to the unbeliever. Well, suppose then that I go into that same place, I'm an unbeliever, a Christian comes to me, someone that I know has never studied my language because I maybe have an obscure language or something, and in my language... He speaks to me the gospel of Jesus, and I have no question. I know that he's never studied my language. Is that going to be a sign to me? You betcha. You betcha. That is the scriptural gift of tongues, a sign not to believers but to unbelievers. Well, you know, there's this idea that says, well, if you speak in tongues, it's going to edify you. It's going to build you up. You know, it's going to make you so much, have you so much more faith and all that. And uh, I hear that time and time again, that, it, that if you just speak in tongues, it's going to give you that assurance, you know, of your salvation or whatever or your assurance that the spirit is with you and all of that and they hold that up as being something to achieve something to reach for is that what the scripture says though no they get that from first corinthians chapter 14 uh verse 4 it says one who speaks in the tongue edifies himself but one who speaks who prophesies edifies the church and they say see speaking the tongue you edify yourself but is paul holding that out as the standard to reach for to edify yourself now be honest no no he is speaking against that self-edification. He's not holding self-edification up. He is speaking against edifying yourself through this gift or anything else. He says one who speaks in the tongue, he just edifies himself. He just builds himself up. But one who prophesies, he says, edifies the church. And so verse 11, uh, verse, uh, da, 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 where is it? Now I'm, I've left my notes. Verse 12. So also, since you are zealous in spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. There he, he says it very plainly, that it is not for self-edification. He's not building that up, but it's for edification of the church. Well, oh, I'm butchering this. Tongues is a sign gift. I've skipped up over so much. Uh, tongues third is a secondary gift. It's a secondary gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. He lists the, the list of the gifts there and the very last one that he lists is the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation. The last one listed, well, you say, well, that's just the way they were listed. That doesn't mean anything. Well, then you go to verse 31. He says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Desire the greater gifts. Then in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Proclamation there. 
It is a secondary gift. It is not the gift to be held up. It is not the gift to be put on a pedestal that everyone should strive for. He lists it last in his list of the gifts. Not only that, he says, desire the greater gifts. Desire that you may prophesy. Desire the greater gifts. The problem is that even with that, that whole movements today are based upon this gift of tongues, built around and based upon this gift. I have a real problem with that. Okay, I'm going to go on. Fourth, it is a selective gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. It is a selective gift. Paul is asking rhetorical questions. He said, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Paul is asking the question, obviously eliciting a negative response. No, the answer is, all do not speak in tongues. All do not interpret. Yet we are told by many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and I don't question that at all, the salvation, but we are told by many of our brothers and sisters in Christ that if we have not received the gift of tongues, that we may not be saved. Certainly have not received the Holy Spirit. When clearly in God's Word, it says it is a selective gift. Verse 18 says that God has placed in the body the members as He desires to do so. Verse 11 says that He distributes the gifts as He desires, as He wills. Not as you or I desire, not as we will. It is His sovereign gift. He gives it as He wills. So it's a selective gift. It's not something that everybody's going to get. Scripture never says that. So it's kind of ridiculous to make such a vital experience as being filled with the Spirit dependent upon a gift that the Scripture clearly says not all are ever going to receive anyway. Okay, last, it is a safeguarded gift. Chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. All of the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, as a matter of fact, is written to control the gift of tongues. That's the reason Paul wrote it, to control it. They were abusing it. So Paul writes to them to control it. And he gives it very clearly, very concisely, verses 27 and 28. These are the, are the uh, safeguards on the gift. He says, let it be two or three, one at a time, and there must be an interpreter. Okay? Let there be two or three, but let them do it one at a time, and there must be an interpreter. In all of my years, I've never seen it done scripturally. And I've been with some very spiritual people who uh, love the Lord with all their heart, but as they practice this, it was not done scripturally. It's not done scripturally. You automatically can mark it off. I would, I would be interested to test this one day, and probably never will, never will have the opportunity, be foolish to even try it. But allow someone who, two or three people who claim to have the gift of interpretation of tongues, to give an interpretation of a tongue that someone is given in a meeting. Not, do not allow them to hear what each other is giving as they give their interpretation. And if their interpretation was exactly the same, then you have the scriptural gift. You have a known language that's been interpreted, that's been translated. That has never happened, to my knowledge, and never will, because what is going on is not the scriptural gift of tongues. Not to say that it can't happen, but what I've seen is not the scriptural gift, is not known languages. This is a scriptural gift, but you must be true to the scripture. You must let it speak. And I skipped over so much tonight. Oh, man, I skipped over so much. 
And so I'm interested, if you are still confused about some things, and I'm sure you are, I'm interested to sit down with you individually and talk about it. Uh, but I'm not going to take another night uh, on Sunday night to deal with this. We're going to go on from here. Um, but let me wrap it up by saying this. First of all, it is a scriptural gift. That means it is known languages, not gibberish. Some say that it's passed away. That may be true. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 says, Where there be prophecies, blah, 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 tongues, these will pass away. For when that which is perfect has come, that which is imperfect will pass away. I'm not convinced that that's referring to the completed canon of Scripture. Uh, because right on down there, he talks about, We know in part now, but then we'll know fully. For then we see face to face, we'll be known as, as uh, we'll know as we have been known. I think he's talking about the eternity uh, when Jesus comes again. But that's up for, for grabs. Um, but it is a scriptural gift. Second, it's a sign gift, not to believers, but to unbelievers. How can anything uh, like what we see today be a sign gift to an unbeliever? There's no miracle to that. Anybody could do that. But it'd have to be a miracle of God for someone to speak a language they've never learned. A known language, that's a miracle. Anybody can speak ecstatic utterance. But a miracle would be, which would be a sign to an unbeliever, someone speaking a language they've never learned. Third, it's a selected gift. God gives it as he wills. Don't let anybody tell you you're not filled with the Holy Spirit if you haven't received it. That's a lie. The scripture never teaches that. Fourth, it's a safeguarded gift. There are guidelines. Anytime that the word of God is deviated from, mark it off. It's not of God. Now let me close with this. I love these people. And I've said this to you before. One of the guys that was instrumental in leading me to Jesus when I was a senior in high school is in a charismatic Baptist church just outside of Louisville. I love him with all my heart. He's a dear brother. He loves Jesus. Man, he loves Jesus. The love of Jesus just exudes from this guy. There's no question that he loves the Lord with all his heart.